When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Dive in to Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com, your companion podcast in the Orange and Brown Talk feed. Make sure you're listening to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast five days a week and then listen to this podcast twice a week. This is our second week, our third overall podcast, Doug Maurice with Scott Patsko and Ellis Williams, where we dive in to two big-time issues around the Cleveland Browns. We analyze those issues with film breakdowns, with numbers breakdowns, and we just, you know, take a little more time, right? You know, we just, we just dig in, you know, like we just, we have that opportunity because the other podcast is so good and takes care of everything else. You know, we just, we just get to kick back. So I'm just an old man in a lawn chair with two smart football guys. We give each of them a half an hour to sort of state their case and make you smarter. And this week we are going to start with Scott Patsko talking about Miles Garrett. And then the second half, we will go to Ellis Williams talking about maybe not so fast, maybe not so much of the quickness in the back half of the Browns defense and why that might be an issue moving forward. But Scott, we'll start with you. Famous guy, Miles Garrett. He likes dinosaurs. He's friendly. Everybody likes him. But guess what? Is this a new era of Miles Garrettness? what we saw in week three against Washington? And what's it mean for the future? Scott Patsko, dive in. Yeah, we're going from the, the fast part of, of the Browns defense with Miles Garrett to maybe the not-so-fast part with, uh, with Ellis's uh, section of this. But, uh, but, yeah, after watching that game and re-watching, I felt like we really needed to talk about Miles Garrett because he finally had – well, I don't want to say finally, but he had one of the games that we haven't maybe seen enough of, those games that we expect from a guy who's the highest-paid non-QB in the NFL uh, when he signed his, his deal this offseason. And it wasn't so much the quantity of what he did. He had five pressures – uh, on Dwayne Haskins, the, the Browns only pressured Dwayne Haskins 10 times, according to PFF, which was kind of surprising. But then when you rewatch it, you're like, you know, he, he really made a lot of those mistakes on his own. So it, it, it kind of makes sense after, after another look. But, but we saw Garrett come up with plays in like high leverage moments, right? The Browns took that 24-20 lead in the fourth quarter. The next drive, uh, Garrett gets a turnover. Or, I'm sorry, he, he gets his hand on, uh, on Haskins and you get the interception. And they take 31-20 lead, and again, he causes the fumble, the strip sack. So it's like back-to-back drives in the fourth quarter. Here's your, your megastar defensive end making the plays that you paid him to make and having his impact on the outcome of the game. Um, next-gen stats actually had him with seven pressures, and after we watching the game, it seems more accurate. They actually said he's the only player since 2016 with three turnovers caused by pressure. I couldn't find that third one. I know the Goodson pick was one. I know the strip sack was the other. Maybe the all-22 
film will show that third one. But at any rate, he, he had a good game. He's sixth among defenders in PFF grade. He's third among edge rushers, and he's first in pass rush grade. So this is, this is the Miles Garrett you paid for, at least this week. Um, I'm curious if you guys feel like we saw the Miles Garrett that we're supposed to see on Sunday. Well, before we get to Ellis's take on that, I just want to read the list of the best uh, edge rushers by the PFF grade. Number one is TJ Watt. Number two is Khalil Mack. Number three is Miles Garrett. Four, Nick Bosa. Five, Joey Bosa. So that's the kind of company you want to be keeping in something like that. Ellis, did you feel something different or see something different in your opinion with Miles Garrett? Yeah, I, I really did. This is becoming a trend. Uh, Miles Garrett is taking that next step into, again, I, I, exactly what Scott said. You don't want to say superstardom or that he hasn't done this before, but when you are the, the cream of the crop, the best of the best in you know, athletics in general, the, the, one of the main signs of that is when you impose your will and just completely dominate lesser opponents. And that's what the Browns have seen of opposing offensive lines over these last two weeks. It's well documented how bad the Bengals offensive line is and how the Browns and defensive co- coordinator Joe Woods were able to move miles around the offensive line or defensive line and expose those weaknesses, you know, right guard, some, some right tackles, things like that. And we saw some of the similar things uh, in Sunday's win. And that's the jump that miles Garrett is making right now that we're, we're seeing right now, Scott, I, I, each week you do a great job with your, um, uh, your grades, your grade stories, where you list the PFF grades, and it's just a one-stop shop to see how the Browns uh, units did b- broken down in subsections. And I thought your defensive line section was really impressive because it highlighted how much better Miles is playing than all the really good defensive linemen around him. You know, he he had a 91 grade, I believe, off the top of my head, and then everyone else was flirting in the 60s, higher 60s, mid 60s, stuff like that. And and those are talented players. I mean, Jordan Elliott, a, a third round pick, talk about a steal in the draft potentially. Adrian Claiborne, Sheldon Richardson. These are all talented guys that are, you know, B, B plus talents. And then there's Miles Garrett, Miles Garrett playing like the A chip, A plus player, blue chip player that he is. And so I, I, I'm really, I'm seeing the eye test checks out, the, the stats check out. And when we watch the tape, it's checking out with Miles Garrett and with how they're moving around the line. And I know, Scott, you're going to get into that too. I'm, I am very curious about a lot of things here. One is that he doesn't have the defensive end pairing that we expected because Olivier Vernon's been hurt. Adrian Claiborne is here. Everybody was excited about him. He's actually not playing that many snaps. He's playing a lot with Porter Gustin. And so I, I'm curious, Scott, how you think that factors into everything because the dream, right? The dream of like, hey, let's get somebody on the other defensive end who's almost as dangerous as Miles Garrett and see what that does. That just really hasn't, no offense to Port Augustine, but that just hasn't really happened so far, yet Miles is still grading out and playing at this level. Yeah, it's, it's, and that kind of leads into the second thing I wanted to talk to, but you're right. Um, you know, when Vernon showed up, uh, it didn't really matter whether they were together or not. Miles Garrett's kind of doing his thing. And I think the first, well, the last two games kind of show a little bit about uh, maybe what we're going to see more from Garrett than what we saw last year. Garrett played 90% of his pass rush snaps from, from, uh, from the right side, going against the left tackle his first two years. Then Vernon showed up. And if you remember the big storyline was what's going to happen now, because Olivier Vernon's played predominantly from the right, his whole career in New York, uh, who's moving over to the left and, Vernon talked a lot about how it's going to be a tough switch for him. Garrett, Garrett didn't care. He's like, I could play, I could play anywhere, but Vernon had to go over to the left. They ended up last season actually rushing more from the right, both of them, but 
clearly it dropped to 60% for Miles Garrett. So he did do a little bit from both sides and he had to kind of show that he could do it from both sides. And, and he had a good season up until he got suspended this year though, that 60% is skewed all the way to the left. He's actually had more snaps going against a right tackle this year than a left tackle. In week one, when Vernon was out there, it was all on the left side against Baltimore, which Miles Garrett has traditionally not played well against Baltimore. A lot of it has to do with Ronnie Stanley and the fact that they've had good tackles. Um, but in week two, without Larry Vernon, there was Miles Garrett over on the left side more than the right again. 33 snaps from the left versus 25 from the right. So it didn't really matter you know, if it was Porter Gustin or Olivier Vernon or, or Adrian Claiborne or whoever they're going to put out there, Miles um, Garrett has indicated in the past that he kind of, he can make that call um, that he can kind of move around based on how he, how he sees himself, you know, doing in that particular drive or game. But clearly he, he wanted to give that more of, an, of a try on the left side against Washington. The first two series, he, again, he's over on the left and then he switched to the right for the rest of the game. I didn't get a chance to ask him why he would do that against Washington um, but that's, uh, again, it, based on what he said in the past, it seems to be a feel thing. Um, but production-wise, it doesn't really matter. He's got nine, nine pressures from the left, 10 from the right this year, two sacks from the right, one from the left. So uh, he seems to have transitioned from a guy who coaches at least seem to think that had to be up over your left tackle every snap to a guy who can produce, you know, wherever he is. And I think it was a few years ago we started seeing all those stories about how the best pass rushers are going against right tackles. Now teams are paying left tackles all this money. And now, you know, defenses are, are rushing from the other side. And it seems like miles Garrett might be transitioning to that here. So, so I would like to get, I would like to get this answer then from both of you. We'll start with Scott, Scott, what would you do if you were the defensive line coach or you were Joe Woods, would you just let miles Garrett decide or how would you decide left and right? Would you, would you try to make it depend on matchups who the tackles are for each teams? What would you do if you were his coach? <laughs> I would, I would probably let miles Garrett make the call to some extent because look, I guess it, the deal is this. Do you want miles Garrett going against a tackle who maybe is not as good and Porter Gustin going against the best pass blocker on the offensive line? Or do you want miles Garrett going against the best pass blocker? I guess it depends on how good is that best pass blocker. You probably have to take it in a game-by-game situation. Against Baltimore, that, that scenario is a lot different than against Cincinnati. But Garrett has proven that it doesn't really matter where he lines up. It probably has more to do with who you're playing and are you going to have Olivier Vernon out there or, or not. And I, I watched a, a little bit of that Seattle-Dallas game on Sunday as the Browns get ready for Dallas. Dallas is moving some guys around on the offensive line. They made an offensive line switch in the middle of the game. And, and Ellis, I know you always do the opponent preview. So, Ellis, two questions for you then. And I know Scott. Scott hates the two questions. So, wait. So, if I, I'll ask you one question, Ellis, and then you answer it. Then I'll ask you the second question. So, Ellis, your first question is the same one for Scott. If you were El- Miles Garrett, if you were his coach, how would you deploy him on left and right? Yeah, Miles Garrett's the type of player where his influence, his opinion is heard in, in, the, in, these, in these meetings. That, that is first and foremost important. But one thing I think is interesting about how this defense and specifically the defensive line is being built is what uh, Mel- linebacker Malcolm Smith said today during his availability. Uh, there was a question about if this defense is taking a Seattle Seahawks type look. And uh, Malcolm actually said, considering that Joe – he said Joe Woods is taking a lot of different things from where he's been, but specifically he was with the 49er. And if you want comparisons, watch the 49er tape and you'll see a, a mold of the Browns defense that they're trying to build. I wrote about that in the off season. And I, that is where miles Garrett's 
production is coming from, as Scott highlighted, with being able to move him around. So to answer your question, you exploit the matchups. It was a tack, he had a sack versus the Bengals when he lined up over their right guard. Um, when there's a weaker right tackle, and we'll get into that with Dallas, who they pulled Zach Martin, their, their all-pro guard, and put him at right tackle yesterday, which is just a, a fascinating uh, subplot to follow. Um, that's how Joe Woods, you know, and, and that Niners defense made such a killing last year with the 49ers. Of course, you have five first-round picks across your defensive line. You're going to find mismatches everywhere. But specifically, when you have a talent like Miles Garrett, target the weakest offensive lineman, and on, you know, those got-to-have-it-downs, put him and line him up over whoever that player is, and you're seeing the results of that. So then specifically Dallas this week, again, you just mentioned they switched their right tackle in the middle of the game. Would you go hunting that? Would you put Miles Garrett on the left side over that right tackle, or what's the best thing for this Sunday? Well, you're not going to like the answer because it's a wait and see, because what's going on with Dallas right now, their offensive line is real banged up, as, as we mentioned. We should know by today, later this afternoon, um, and by the time you hear this, the news will probably be out. Um, Lionel, Lionel Collins is eligible to come off the IR. I'm not sure if they're doing that or not. And then Tyron Smith, their left tackle, who's missed games due to a neck injury, uh, is, leaning, is, is trending towards practicing and potentially playing this weekend. So the Browns are in a wait-and-see mode with how they're going to deploy Miles Garrett because all of a sudden if this Dallas offensive line is healthier than originally thought – you're now probably facing more traditional matchups. Miles Garrett might not, might not move around as much if they're at, you know, full strength or 80%. But if it's the offensive line that fans saw last week against the Seahawks, it's going to be play him over a guy. I mean, Zach Martin is a talented offensive lineman. Don't get me wrong, but he hasn't played right tackle since college. And he, he did fine out there and was prepared to do so. They repped that in practice. Dallas did, but you go ahead and, and line him up where he's comfortable over a, a tackle rather than being inside as much. And there's a real mismatch opportunity there. So if the line's weak, you're exploiting mismatches, but if these guys are coming back in full strength, perhaps keeping miles Garrett put and just letting him put his head down and go one-on-one with either Collins or uh, Smith on the other side uh, is, it gives an opportunity for then, you know, guys like Sheldon Richardson to potentially get more in, inside pressure rather than miles Garrett coming off the edge. Scott, when you are looking now at these numbers with Miles Garrett through three games, whether it's his number of pressures or his PFF grade, are you looking and seeing like this is a peak and he'll come back to earth a little bit? Or when you look and see what, I don't know, maybe compared to other great defensive ends, is this a new, a new threshold that this is maybe the level that we would expect Miles Garrett now to play at every week? I would expect this to be the level he plays at every week. Uh, I think I'm, bringing it up right now he's actually well he's never had a season where he graded in the 90s but he's been right on the cusp so I guess maybe I'll take that back (laughs) if he stays if he stays at this clearly it's it's a bump up but I would think that if you get a full season out of Miles Garrett this season uh based on the way he was trending last season while he was on the field you would think that this should be the new normal that we should have more games like this um and that he should be getting 90 pass rush grades and, and 90 defensive grades from PFF. That should be the normal. He should be in the top five with the guys you mentioned earlier, that that's what you want from Miles Garrett. And it seems like they're not just going to stick him on the right side and say, okay, get it done over here. We're going to move you around and make sure that you have every opportunity to play at that level. So there's something I want to ask about. And just so the listeners know this here on got to watch the tape from cleveland.com. 
Scott and Ellis do a lot of research going into it and I do no research. And then like, we just kind of wing it from there. So there is the possibility that these very smart people who dig into things, I may ask them questions that they didn't dig into. So, you know, if I do that, I apologize, but I actually don't really apologize because, you know, that's the way it works. You guys get paid for this stuff. So I remember, and I have a terrible memory, but certainly in Miles Garrett's second year, he played a ton. And that was an issue, how many snaps he played. He was third in 2018, third on the defense in, in total defensive snaps. Demarius Randall, Jamie Collins, and then Miles Garrett, third. He played 1,012 snaps, which is just like a huge number for a pass-rushing defensive end. One of the most interesting things that I, I found from the post-game interviews uh, after the win on Sunday, Miles Garrett was asked about a series earlier in the game where he was on the sideline for a little bit. And he was saying, it's like, were you hurt or anything? And he was like, no, I was just getting a break. But I was trying to save it up for when I knew it would need, be needed. And then on that strip sack play, when it was needed, man, he had that guy. He had the tackle set up. He had great speed. He had great bend around the corner. He knew he was going for the ball. When I look at the snaps this year, Scott, Miles Garrett has a, a 181 snaps. He's fifth on the defense in snaps. How much should he play? And I am fascinated by, again, it feels like there's a lot of faith in Miles Garrett. Maybe you decide when you, where you line up. Maybe you decide when you need to come out of the game. But there are going to be moments. It's hard to see him on the sideline. But if he's out there getting a breather so he can get a game-changing strip sack, that's a worthy break. Where are you on how much this guy should play? I, I – I was actually looking up some of the numbers that, that you mentioned there because I started thinking about uh, how much he played, uh, especially in that 2018 uh, season. And there was a lot of talk about, like you said, is Miles playing too much? He played 77% of the snaps against Washington. They were uh, full drives, multiple full drives, where they had the backup defensive line out there. And at some point, maybe it was a third down, all of a sudden you'd see Miles Garrett back in there. And this happened more, uh, I think, in the third quarter maybe, uh, and some into the fourth. And uh, that drive where he did have the strip sack, I believe he was, he didn't start that drive. I don't believe if I remember from whatever you watched, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's how much he should play should be determined by how well that second group can hold the line. So you can keep guys like him on the sideline to get a rest. If you like last season that I know he wasn't out there over the second half of the year, but the defensive line was kind of a disaster and they really didn't have much depth at all. Um, that's not a group that you want to have out there to give Miles Garrett a breather because you know that bad things are going to happen, and they did. Um, but this year, it seems like they kind of have a rotation down that is working for them, and that second union didn't cave. <laughs> they, you know, didn't make them rush Miles Garrett and, and Sheldon Richardson and Larry Ogunjobi back out there. So, yeah, I mean, if you get the chance to do it, that's the perfect storm. You, you have a backup group that you can put out there, and, and you can give those guys a breather so they're there to make the game-changing plays. So defensive line snaps against Washington. Again, you guys are the numbers guys. Maybe you know this. Would you be surprised to know that Porter Gustin played more snaps than Miles Garrett did defensively? Porter Gustin played 53. Miles Garrett played 49. Sheldon Richardson, 42. Larry Yogan, Joby, 40. Jordan Elliott, 22. Jackson, 19. Who's Jackson? Should I know that guy? If I cover the Browns, should I know who that is? Joe Jackson. Joe Remember Jackson. Stepping out in the 80s. Uh, pop yeah. Hit? Is That's he good? That's what I get in my head every time. Is uh, Joe Jackson good? Should I know who he is? He grades well. He doesn't play a lot. Okay. He played more than Adrian Claiborne. 16 snaps for Claiborne. 
Ellis, is that what, what do you think? Porter Gustin, 53 snaps, Miles Garrett, 49. Now, uh, the week before, the but Cincinnati. Porter started, though, right? Porter started, yeah. Porter was the yeah. starting off, yeah, the other opposite, yeah. yeah, the opposite defensive end. The week before, Cincinnati had the ball the whole game. Joe Burrow threw the ball 111 times or whatever it was. So Miles played 84 snaps against Cincinnati. So again, it's like, I'm not, I, I, my point is not like, hey, Miles Garrett should play more. I don't know. Ellis, Porter Gustin, more snaps than Miles Garrett. Smart, good balance, or does it just remind us that we, we would like to see Olivier Vernon back on the field sooner than later? Well, I like how you ended that because, yes, Olivier Vernon is going to be a piece where he provides a, a, a not necessarily a breather for Miles Garrett, but an opportunity to continue to roll these defensive linemen. D-line is really a lot like, and here goes a, my Minnesota background for you, it's like hockey lines. You need as many fresh bodies as you can because I'd, you'd rather roll and keep the players fresh than keeping a unit out there and they drag towards the end of the game. Uh, I've made this reference before, but the Giants defensive line versus the Patriots uh, in that Super Bowl, you're able to roll, you know, five, six, seven defensive linemen in there. And then on those critical downs in the fourth quarter, specifically when conditioning matters, you can put your four top pass rushers out there and, and completely wreak havoc. So when you see Porter Gustin playing more than Miles Garrett, I, I, I think of two things. First, it's a bit of a, a course correction due to the high snaps he played versus the Bengals. Probably uh, Kevin Stefanski's hinted uh, and not really hinted. He's, he's very transparent about the plan and the snap count, both in practice and in games that they have these players on there. There's a, analytics behind keeping these players healthy for the long run. We got to remember it's, it's just going to, we're just getting into October. You know, this is a very young season. So seeing 80 snaps out of a, a defensive end, like Miles Garrett, Joe Woods and Stefanski probably saw that and thought that's way too many. Let's cut that, you know, almost in half the next week. And by playing Porter Gustin more, it allows them to still have a body out there, a capable body, a guy who of course is going to, you know, have his lane assignments and, and be there, but he's not the striker, the killer that Miles Garrett is, is. So Scott alluded to it. When you bring Miles Garrett in for those, those game changing downs, He's fresh, and I think that's what we're seeing because if you – the reason we we dance around this Miles Garrett topic and say things kind of accidentally, our first reaction that, oh, we're finally seeing this out of Miles is not because he hasn't put up the numbers before, but in the past, a fair amount of his sacks have felt like empty calories. It felt like, the, okay, you got your sack, but when did it come? Did it really matter? And what was, you know, game time score and so on? These past two weeks, he's completely swung the game. He's changed the game, and those sacks almost should be worth, you know, two instead of just the one because of how monumental they are. And they said it on the broadcast, and it's, it's essentially the, the trifecta he was able to get versus Washington. He got the sack, he forced the fumble, and then he recovered the fumble himself. I mean, that is just as athletic as it gets, as the peak of your profession as it gets, and that's the Miles Garrett you get when you have a lower snap count and are able to keep them fresh. And it's a depth thing, essentially, that the Browns are building up front. So, Scott, there's the, another numbers question I have, and I don't know what you have right in front of you and not, but, but Miles, there's the pressures, right? I think we're all smart enough now to realize that the true test of a great defensive lineman is not just sacks, right? That we have to be smarter than that. But, you know, right? I mean, Close but no cigars. If your pressures are affecting the quarterback, then of course that's a big deal. If you're kind of getting there and just but not getting quite there, you know you don't force a fumble without getting a sack. Where is he in 
he, it feels like he's always been a guy, right, who gets some pressures and he's had big sack numbers. But where is he right now in the numbers of pressures that he's getting three games in and then also the number of sacks that he's getting three games into the season? He has 19 pressures, which obviously leads the Browns. He has three sacks. His 19 pressures, and actually I'm bringing it up now, I believe it's that might be first. Yeah, it is first. He's tied with Joey Bosa with 19, according to PFF. So, yeah, clearly he's on a, a high pace there as far as pressures goes. And, look, I mean, Miles Garrett getting a pressure, we saw him getting his hand on Haskins, and Haskins throws an interception. It doesn't always have to be a sack, and the Browns will tell you that. Clearly, you want to get a sack because that ends the play right then and there, but you're getting pressure on the quarterback. He throws poorly. He's off target or he's running. You know, we, there was one, uh, I think it was a third down play that he flushed uh, Haskins out of the pocket. I think Haskins picked it up, but still, that's not ideal for Washington to have your quarterback running out of the pocket like that. So it's just like a defensive back, you know, if he completes the pass, but if as long as you tackle him before the first down you, marker on third down, well, then you've had a successful stop. Miles Garrett, since he's been here, has done more than just sack people. Last year, when they beat the Ravens, was it 40 to 25, week five? He had one pressure that whole game. But if you went back and watched what he did, he's double teamed. He's opening up uh, avenues for his teammates. He does a lot, even when he's not getting sacks or getting pressures. Uh, 2018, when he played the full season, he was seventh in the NFL in pressures with 67. Um, so, so, Scott, this was your topic on Miles Garrett, is there anything anything we haven't covered from a number standpoint, or from the, the idea of the point you want to make about this guy who is making a difference for the Browns? No, I think I just think it's interesting how much he's skewed on where he's lining up, and I'm really eager to see what happens when Olivier Vernon comes back. The fact that Vernon didn't spend any pass rush snaps coming from the left side was just odd uh, in Week One. And like I said, last year, they somehow both, uh, even when they were both playing through week 11 before Miles Garrett got suspended, at that point, they both had more rushes from the, from the right side over left tackle than, than the other side, which is kind of impressive they were able to pull that off. So I'm kind of eager to see how that works when Vernon does come back and if that trend continues with, with Garrett seeming to, to get more rushes from the left. If he would have played a full 16-game season last year, the pace he was on, he would have finished like seventh or eighth in the NFL in pressures a year ago. So he's going from a guy who was seventh or so to now he's tied for first in the NFL. And, and that's the kind of thing that's the kind of thing that shows up. So you get your paycheck and uh, you make an even bigger difference on the field. That's how I operate. Man, when I get paid, I just raise my level, right? I mean, come on. That's why we're in this business. That's why we're doing podcasts, big money. It's all about the money. Yeah. Okay. Hey, 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 Doug, Doug, before yes. we start, I want to get this topic in real quickly. Um, I really enjoyed what you wrote after the game yesterday about uh, the Browns and the, the weak or mediocre quarterbacks they're facing. And I might be giving you a part two of that story here because with those weak quarterbacks, there's also a trend of weak offensive line play. And I think that's really important to keep in mind as you look forward to the Browns schedule that Kevin Stefanski, Joe Woods wanted to build and dominate up front. They invest in the offensive line. They invest in the defensive line, and then you see this jump from Miles Garrett. It's almost a direct correlation with the quarterbacks you mentioned, how weak these offensive lines are. You know, Philly, the Bengals again, both the New York teams. The, when not only are you going to be able to take advantage of quarterbacks that are making mistakes, but Miles Garrett is going to, is already proven, and then we expect him 
to continue to dominate and impose his will on those weaker offensive lines, thus making the quarterback's job even harder. So I expect Miles Garrett to stay at this pace, both because he's clearly making another step here in his career and also the offensive lines. I, I don't see them getting much better, potentially starting with Dallas next week. And then, as I said, moving on with Cincinnati, the Eagles later and both those New York teams. So the Browns have both a favorable, favorable schedule playing some mediocre quarterbacks throughout the rest of the season. And they're going to be able to take advantage of these offensive lines. So there is, we're going to transition now to Ellis's point after this break, but there is like a Miles Garrett point that I want to ask about when we talk about Ellis analyzing the lack of speed in the back half of this Browns defense, because all the good teams, right? Everything ties together. When you build a roster and you build a plan at all, the, the Browns after the game on Sunday talked about complimentary football ad nauseum. Everybody who came through the interview room talked about complimentary football. And for them, that meant, hey, the defense forces turnovers. The offense takes that short field and converts it into touchdowns. We don't need Baker Mayfield to throw for 350 yards because we're working together. Defense sets it up. Offense spikes it. I, I wonder about a complimentary thing going on with Miles Garrett and maybe some of the issues in the back end. We're going to dive in with Ellis Williams the back half of the Browns defense right after this on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Back on Gotta Watch the Tape, Cleveland.com, Doug Marie, Scott Patsko, Ellis Williams. We are in the Orange and Brown Talk podcast feed. And so we know that you are listening five days a week to that podcast. Great post-game podcast on Sunday after the Browns beat Washington. The, the, the tech subscribers are able to dive right in and interact in that podcast. Uh, there's there's texter interaction during the week. There's a picks podcast. There's the news of the day, breakdowns of what's happening. Just, of course, make sure you're listening to that podcast on a regular basis. And then, you know, you dip in here for just, you know, a little something different. Ellis Williams is going to dive in. Ellis, I'll just get right to you. It's Is it about OBJ again? Right? Is that what you said? It's about OBJ? No, no, no. Wait, wait. So I, I do have to say this. I accused – I sc- – I sc- Ellis got the first taste of what it's, what it's like to be screamed at on a podcast by Doug Maurice in the yeah. podcast, in the post-game podcast on Sunday. It was a Baker Mayfield screaming fight. I would encourage you to go listen to that Sunday post-game podcast, and we will get to an extended Baker Mayfield fight on Gotta Watch the Tape sooner than later. At some point, we're all just going to sit down and do some Baker Mayfield film. But that's not yet. That's not this week. Ellis, dive in. What you got for us? I love that tease, Doug. You know, it's like the big title fight coming up in a, a couple months, you know, just, just we'll tease it now, get the pay-per-view later. I, I'm here for it. But again, that's not what we're talking about today. What I want to focus on is how the Browns defense is defending what I call perimeter plays. Um, I consider perimeter plays to be anything that gets playmakers the ball on the outside, outside the numbers, gets uh, defensive flow going from left to right. So bubble screens, jet sweeps, or wide receiver reverses, speed outs out of empty sets and shallow crosses while watching the game. And I, I, I'm wondering if you guys felt the same way. It, Washington's offense had a very specific plan of attack. Then after rewatching the game, I realized they had a great game plan. Really the only reason it didn't work was because they got out of that game plan due to Dwayne Haskins throwing interceptions. And I'll get into that later about uh, you see how successful they were in the first and third quarters using their perimeter play game plan. And then they completely get away from it in the second quarter and fourth quarter, because that's when the game got away from them. And the Browns defense was able to capitalize and play in short field. So here's why, and here's why you need to know this, the stat you need to completely understand. And if you take away one thing from this, it's this number, 
Washington averaged 11 yards per perimeter play. 11 yards. That's how many yards the Browns defense surrendered moving from sideline to sideline on those snaps. <clears throat> in total, Washington ran 15 outside hitting plays. Cleveland allow, allowed 165 yards on those plays and eight first downs. That's terrible. There you go. There you go. Now, so let me, before I keep going, I want to ask you guys, did you guys notice Washington's um, emphasis on stretching the, the sidelines? And did you, what just from an eye test did you see from some of these players chasing and Washington players that we really didn't have an idea who they were outside of Terry McLaurin? I will say that there have been times in Ohio State's recent football history when they have leaned on the jet sweep a lot. They don't really do it as much anymore. I had not seen a team lean on jet sweeps as much as Washington did on Sunday than I did a couple of years ago with Ohio State. And it made me think, wow, this is interesting. I didn't realize there were NFL teams that did jet sweeps as much. But I had no idea if like this is what Washington does all the time or if this was just a thing against Cleveland. But I definitely felt it in the moment. Scott, did you? Yeah, I think coming into this game, I think before the game, I think uh, it might have been Ellis that tweeted out about uh, the Browns having to pay attention to all those slants when, when Washington comes to town because they're going to try and they're going to try and get people in space. And McLaurin's going to, he's going to excel in that because of all his speed. And the fact that the Browns are like looking and struggling to find cornerbacks who can cover people this season. So, yeah, I think uh, knowing that they were going to attack that and, and the fact that the linebackers on the Browns have struggled so much this season, of course, Goodson comes up with interception and a fumble return. But prior to that, he'd really been somebody who, who was not filling up a lot of space, who had trouble covering people who just come into his zone, not even following them off the line of scrimmage. So, so yeah, it made a lot of sense that, that Washington would attack that. So, Ellis, we have talked on this on Gotta Watch the Tape before about some of the coverage issues. Scott brought that up before about the linebacker coverage issues. But what you're saying here is this is not only a pass defense issue. When you're saying perimeter plays, it's not just perimeter throws, and it's not just crossing routes in the middle of the field. It's in the run game, too. Right, exactly. And I'm glad you asked me that, Doug, because it's important to distinguish the difference between linebackers and box safeties not being able to carry and cover tight ends and slot receivers downfield and getting behind them, <clears throat> and then the difference between not being able to cover them laterally. Because essentially what Washington was doing yesterday was using quick game as an extension of their running game. Rather than running straight into the teeth of Larry Okunjobi and Sheldon Richardson, <clears throat> they targeted running back JT McKissick. In empty sets, they used slot receivers Isaiah Wright, Terry McLaurin on reverses, jet sweeps, shallow crosses, and were able to find Logan Thomas on quick outs and option routes. And again, I, it's an obvious part of their game plan because in the first quarter, they were able to hit seven successful perimeter plays, uh, four first downs on all those plays. So these, I mean, these are plays where the Browns defense cannot get off the field and Washington resorts to, there was a third and one that Terry McLaurin picked up on a wide receiver reverse. He only got four yards, but that moves the sticks. And two plays later, they score a touchdown. So I expect Dallas, as we look forward to next week, with players much more talented than what Washington has at their disposal, rather than running Ezekiel Elliott right into Sheldon Richardson and Larry Ogunjobi, Dak Prescott is going to get the ball out of his hands quickly by getting the ball outside, flowing on quick screens and outs to CeeDee Lamb. There will be some Zeke Elliott work. Cedric Wilson had two really impressive touchdowns last week. This is a much lo more loaded Dallas offense than what Washington faced. And why this is such a glaring issue, and I really want to stress how important this is, it's because of how successful Washington was and how easy these plays are to hit when your defense is simply 
has slow foot speed sideline to sideline. These are run plays, even though the quarterback is throwing the football, these are run plays that are quick and are going to get you five, six yards of pop, except the Browns were allowing 11 yards of pop. It's a, it's a glaring issue. It popped off the screen yesterday. It was even more apparent in the rewatch. And if we're talking about this right now, I promise you Mike McCarthy and the Dallas Cowboys are aware of this also. All right. Can, can we play a little game here that, that I like to play? I like to call, uh, is that guy slow? So let's. Who's our first contestant? Can we put some <laughs> names on this, Ellis? Like when we're talking about the Browns aren't very fast in these situations and Washington took advantage of it, who do we mean? So you name a guy and then I'll tell you how many snaps he's played defensively this year and where that ranks on the team. Or I could just, should I run through like the top 15 guys in defensive snaps and you can say whether they're slow or not? That actually would be more like the game. All right, here we go. First name up on is this guy slow, Andrew Sandejo. He's played 215 snaps. Ellis, is he slow? Yeah, I'm glad you brought Sandeo up. I was going to uh, – if, if we were going to do it the, the, the first way, I was going to end with him because he is, as you know, a, a free safety, a box safety at times and should not be on this list of is he slow. Anderson Deho is getting abused in quick game and outside throws. Uh, Terry McLaurin made easy work of him several times uh, yesterday. There was a critical third down, I think, on, on the Washington's opening drive – just an easy speed out, one-two shoulder shake and out, and Sandejo completely freezes his feet. So, it, since can Andrew Sandejo run straight fast? Yeah, he's gonna he's a he can cover and make up for speed sometimes. But man, those feet are 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 not there anymore, and we're probably seeing the last legs of a, of an NFL career here, quite frankly. All right, okay, so that's, real, a, that's a yes. Quick, real quick note about Sandejo: he's played every snap for the Browns this year. He's the only defender to play every snap. Yep. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that's ideal. And it makes me want – and Joseph has played like 97%. I mean, Sheldon yeah. Redrine, no snaps. He started five games last year. It makes me wonder what plans they had for Grant Delpit because they're pretty much sink or swim with the, these two guys in safeties. And Ronnie Harrison still is not playing. Six snaps yesterday. What Six. is up, man? It's like – this happens – it's like – when Andrew Barry traded for Ronnie Harrison, he was a genius because he only gave up a fifth round pick for Ronnie Harrison. He doesn't play. Like what? Right. It, and, and, and that's got to change soon. And here's, okay, here's the thing. If it doesn't change, this is going to be a huge issue. Dallas is going to completely expose the, the lateral speed of this team. And if it's not Dallas, uh, the, the Raiders will, I promise you that John Gruden can't wait to get Darren Waller crossing the field outside on bubble screens and Sandejo. It, it pops every time I look at defensive snaps, he's, at 92%, even 100%, you know, like Scott just said. It is um, clearly a familiarity with Joe Woods and Kevin Stefanski back in the Minnesota days and also just a, a complete uh, sign, again, as Scott said, that Grant Delpit had big plans and a big role in this defense, and th that was shot as soon as his Achilles went. All right, so I'll go to the guy next, and we'll, we'll, we want to make sure Scott gets to play too. So, so we'll go to Scott, and then Ellis, if you disagree, then you can, you can also disagree. Uh, next up in, in number of snaps is Terrence Mitchell, who's only missed one snap. Scott Patsko, is Terrence Mitchell slow? Uh, he's faster than me. I mean, he's a cornerback. He's got to be fast. I mean, I, yes, I won't say he's fast. I'm not going to say he's the best run defender or the best tackler in space, but Terrence Mitchell's fast, right? Ellis, is that, is that a correct answer? Is Terrence Mitchell fast? I'm going to agree with Scott here, and I'm glad you, you threw Terrence out there. I, I didn't think you would, but it's, it's a great name to bring up because something's going to change here soon 
with the Browns nickel corner spot. Uh, Javier Thomas, again, even though he was a fan favorite on the broadcast, um, is getting put in spots that he shouldn't be in. It, who, this greedy Williams situation needs to take care of itself real soon because he needs to get back on the field. And we don't know Denzel Ward's situation. <laughs> so a lot of this isn't sounding good, but where I'm, where I'm trying to go with this is that if the Browns can get healthy in their secondary, you can move Terrence Mitchell into the inside and allow him to be in some of these points of attack on perimeter plays on the defense that he has not been in because he's an outside corner right now for the Browns. So he's going to be facing guys like Michael Gallup and Amari Cooper, chasing them on verticals and deep posts downfield, while some of these other names you're going to bring up are chasing guys laterally. So, but to answer your question, is Terrence Mitchell slow? No, but his speed is not being used inside right now. He's an outside corner. All right, third most snaps. Carl Joseph, 209 snaps. Ellis Williams, is Carl Joseph slow? Carl Joseph is, I'm going to put him at average. It's, it's not slow. He's not, uh, his twitch isn't gone like Anderson Deho, and he's not just simply slow feet like some of these other players you're probably going to name here soon. But Carl Joseph's strength is, as we saw yesterday, more reading the field and trusting his instincts rather than moving laterally. But he definitely is one of the better options. Just And again, we're, we're, it's slim pickings as we, we've been getting at. But just due to circumstance, he's one of the better options the Browns have to put in a box situation if moving laterally is the game plan that teams like Dallas uh, attack the Browns with going forward. So, Scott, I know, what, again, you covered a lot of the linebacker coverage issues on a previous podcast, but just when you watch Carl Joseph, I think there was a, there was a touchdown pass uh, that Washington threw where the guy ran a good route, Inman or something ran a good route, but it felt like he, he ran right into an area between Carl Joseph and Terrence Mitchell who kind of wound up sort of like looking at each other as the guy caught a touchdown. When you see that, right, and that's not exactly a, are they slow thing, and I get it. You find a soft spot or whatever, but I, I was just sort of like, really? Like that just happened? Is that just guys who haven't played together much? What did you think of that player? What did you think about where, where Carl Joseph is on the field? I think when we've seen mistakes from Carl Joseph, it's mostly been communication issues. Well, those are the things that stick out. There was another play. can't remember at what point it was, but uh, he was uh, near the line of scrimmage with Malcolm Smith. Washington had a, a couple defenders kind of bunched up, and there was just total miscommunication. Carl Joseph backed off. Malcolm Smith kind of just tried to fall into a zone there. Meanwhile, the guy that Joseph thought he was covering just makes a beeline across the field, catches a pass, and takes down the goal line. I, I can't remember exactly who it was. I think it was a running back. Yeah. Um, but it was clear miscommunication. And, uh, you know, the against uh, Baltimore, you know, you had Mark Andrews having free range in the, in the end zone, and it seemed Carl Joseph was consistently not sure where he should be or at least wasn't communicating with people like, B.J. Goodson uh, on at least one of those. So I don't know if it's – I'm sure, you know, speed and, and all that plays into it, but Carl Joseph's issues, it seems, are more – he's not communicating right, and either he's not doing what he's supposed to or, or the people he's trying to direct from the back of the defense aren't doing what they're supposed to. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ellis. Yeah, real quickly. Scott, I'm really glad you brought up that sequence. Uh, that was a shallow cross to the running back, J.T. McKissick, for 26 yards. Yeah. It, was a, it was a clear miscommunication. But here's the deal. If it was man coverage, uh, they're not staying with them anyway on that shallow cross. Right. That's probably going for 26 regardless. And you saw no makeup speed from Malcolm Smith there. I mean, it would be a compliment to say it was a brisk jog. I mean, he just had no interest chasing McKissick down there. Uh, the next play, talk about miscommunication. Too many men in the huddle. 
Uh, the following play, a bubble screen left to their backup side receiver, Isaiah Wright. That went for six yards. Uh, the next play is a reverse, again, to right for six yards around left end. And now they're getting in to the end zone after that. So that was a third quarter sequence that just went from bad to worse, starting with a two, miscommunication, too many men in the huddle, then another outside hitting play, and a touchdown. That was Washington's game plan when they got away from it that the game is over, but when they were executing it, the Browns had no idea what they were doing. And it's a product of both miscommunication and poor foot speed laterally. All right. This is a gimme number four in snaps, BJ Goodson, 200 snaps so far this season. Scott Patsko is BJ Goodson slow. He's faster than me, but he is too slow for a linebacker. I would say. I don't know about the first part of that. I'm not a hundred percent sure he's faster than me. Five years ago, maybe I could, you know, but now, no, no. He might not be faster than Ellis. Ellis, is this one of the main guys you're talking about? And is this guy slow? Yeah, BJ Goodson. It's just, it's just tough. He's being asked to do things he's not accustomed to doing. We we talked. Scott really highlighted uh, both his snap count and his usage in Green Bay compared to now. And you can just put on the Niners tape from last year. The Niners did a showed uh, what Washington did yesterday by going empty and forcing. B.J. Goodson to go out there and cover a running back, and it's just free picking. So where here's the problem with B.J. Goodson. I don't think he's going to come off the field much just due to the, the limitations this defense has. Mac Wilson returning is going to help this team be quicker sideline to sideline, and that's maybe something we can dive into quickly here. But, again, just due to the slim pickings, B.J. Goodson is not a sideline to sideline player, but he's going to be continue to ask to do so, and it's just one of those weak points that – the Browns really can't cover up, and now it's on tape. Mac Wilson, six snaps against Washington, easing back in. Uh, Miles Garrett, fifth most snaps. Denzel Ward, sixth most snaps. Sheldon Richardson, seventh most snaps. I don't think we have to go through them. Denzel's fast. The other, oh, oh, you, 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 oh, oh, hold on, hold on. We got to lean into the camera from Ellis. I just assume so. Miles and 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 Sheldon Richardson aren't really the point. I'm assuming that Denzel Ward is fast. However. Yeah. We might have a, a point to make here, Ellis. Yeah, so I'm really glad you brought Miles Garrett because one thing I, I we try to do here on Gotta Watch the Tape is we don't want to just sit here and belabor the problem and not try to deliver solutions. So I'm going to write about this later this week. But one thing the Browns may try to do, and perhaps Miles Garrett isn't comfortable doing this and it's not going to happen, but you got to really start figuring out how you can combat teams going sideline to sideline with you. And the only way to combat speed is to match it with speed. And it's asking us so much out of miles Garrett, but he might be asked to take some of these perimeter plays and then you replace him with a blitzing linebacker. Um, Again, I'm going to write about it and I'll have some tape on it in the story later in the week, but it's something the 49ers have done with Nick Bosa. They'll have, and they did it in week one. I believe it was against the Chargers or one of the quicker uh, running backs they're facing. You see a running back go out for a swing or a bubble type play, and Joe or Nick Bosa, excuse me, would just take that perimeter player, and the Niners would replace him with a linebacker. So it would be something that we haven't seen Miles Garrett do, but due to the limitations laterally with this defense, the Browns might have to try it because I'm not really sure how many other answers there are outside of continuing to just give up these plays and that should not be acceptable for any NFL defense. I, I will say, I don't know if you noticed this or not, or maybe I was just seeing things, but it felt like miles Garrett was lining up a little wider than normal before the snap. And, and maybe they had some, you know, something to do with, they wanted to make sure that he was further out to kind of guard against what you were saying, but 
it just felt that way. I didn't go back yet and look closely on uh, week one or two, but it just, it felt like the first couple of drives, I'm like, man, he's really, he's really wide. Um, you know, and didn't really hurt him pass rush wise, but it's feeling they were probably thinking the same thing you were. Interesting. Okay. So that was a miles point. Denzel is fast though. Denzel's still fast. Ellis. Yep. Yeah, Denzel's okay. still fast, but the problem with that is you can't ask your best cover guy to start patrolling the middle because then you're just giving up vertical routes. And as much as I'm just trying to emphasize how bad 11 yards per play on short passes are, you can't just give up vertical. So Denzel's going to be staying on the outside. And that's the point I want to get to before we get to the end of this. So then uh, Sheldon Richardson, he's good. Sione Takitaki, 136 snaps. He's eighth in snaps on this team. We'll go back to Scott. Scott, is Sione Takitaki fast? In the right situation, perhaps. I don't know if he's the guy going sideline to sideline. He, we haven't really shown that yet. Maybe running upfield, uh, pressuring, you know, in the pass rush situation, you can call him fast. But uh, he hasn't shown an ability to track people from sideline to sideline here. And, and let's, to be fair, this, we had to name it, is this guy fast just for sponsor purposes? You know how the TV people get, you get pigeonholed into an idea. So is this guy fast? We understand that's not exactly the point. It's, are you quick in space? Are you reacting to things? Can you cover sideline to sideline? So Ellis, where does Taki talk? He's playing a lot at linebacker. Where does he fit into this for you? Yeah, Scott's dead accurate there. And, and you can loop, uh, BJ Goodson in, in that group. Also, these guys get downhill so good. They just are beasts when they are running towards the line of scrimmage, not parallel with it or away. But Taki Taki's a guy who, and, and, and I will say this, and I have this in my notes and I wanted to mention it, a bright spot in the Browns coverage of perimeter plays on Sunday was the swing pass to the running back. Washington, that, that's another extension of, you know, you just dump it out to your running back, you set up some perimeter blocks, and you make some plays. Uh, the Browns linebackers, B.J. Goodson, Taki Taki, were able to get their foot planted and read that quickly enough, and I think it had a little bit to do with Haskins not getting the ball out fast enough either. But it, it's, again, an example of when they can get downhill, despite it still being a lateral play, when you swing to the running back, you're really throwing it, you know, four yards behind the line of scrimmage, and they are quick enough – or athletic enough to get downhill and make the play but when you have these plays that hit longer on the outside uh, outside the numbers Taki Taki's not your guy for that either all right so he's so he is he is part of the issue here I got I got to mark down the guys who are issues okay he's an issue okay so this guy fascinates me because I like uh, I don't know I said this guy wasn't very good and then on the broadcast on Sunday Chris Spielman loved this guy and I don't know I'm not as smart as Chris Spielman Tavier Thomas, the ninth most defensive snap so far. He's played 134 snaps. Ellis Williams, is Tavier Thomas fast? Tavier Thomas is fast. But here's the problem with Tavier Thomas, and at least what he showed uh, on Sunday. And, again, I'm hammering this point because now it's on tape. This is just – now it's, it's out there. It's, the Browns have been exposed in, in this issue. Tavier Thomas can't get off blocks. These receivers, these, these tight ends, were just getting their hands on a, a smaller inside corner – and he couldn't shed them in order to go make that tackle. So he's fast and a guy who can go out there and, and, and blow a play up. I think he was actually one of the players who um, did blow up one of the running back swing passes. But when you can't shed your block, your speed's eliminated because you're not making the play and you're actually getting pushed back three, four, five, six yards, and then you're trying to get your wrap up. So Tavier has the lateral speed to make the play but he has at least not shown yet that he can get off the critical block to thus stop the play. 
this is probably the one guy on this defense really – well, there's a couple of them actually – who's just playing a lot more defensive snaps, I think, than anybody in the preseason would have planned for. Scott, where are you on, on Tavier Thomas when you watch and you check the grades on this? Is, is he playing pretty well or not? Uh, no, he's not. <laughs> I mean, he's the guy you want on the field if Carl Joseph is returning uh, an interception and happens to fumble it. But yeah. uh, I think the – like, if Denzel Ward isn't able to play – against Dallas and you go there with, um, you know, Mitchell and Joseph and have to have Tavier Thomas on the field a lot. That's not, that's not good. Tavier Thomas in the slot is probably the, the best option they got right now, but it doesn't mean it's a good one. Ideally Kevin Johnson and Denzel Ward and Greedy Williams are back and that's your, your threesome there. But um, I mean, Tavier, Tavier Thomas made this team because of his special teams skills. He had 20 defensive snaps in his career over two years, prior to this year. So he's blowing those numbers away every week. Um, but it's clear. I think we saw that against the Bengals that he's not, um, he's not ideal in coverage and his grades reflect that. Okay. All right. So I'm not going to say we're smarter than Chris Spielman, but he's but fast. I, I feel a little better. I feel a little bit. Cause I, I, that's where I kind of was. And then I was surprised. Uh, last guy will do. He's 12th in snaps, Malcolm Smith, hundred snaps so far. He made the nice read when Dwayne Haskins was staring at a receiver and got a pick on Sunday. But Ellis Williams is, is Malcolm Smith fast. Malcolm Smith is not the guy you want uh, covering these players in space. It was completely exploited when Washington would go into empty sets, uh, motioning their running back into the, the short slot in those bunch formations. And Malcolm Smith does not have the twitch to stay in an option route. When you ask Malcolm Smith to cover both the inside and outside breaking route, He's on an island. That's not where he can. he's going to make a play. He can read quarterbacks. He's a veteran. He knows where to be. But when it comes to keeping these twitchier players in front of him, specifically CeeDee Lamb, Ezekiel Elliott this Sunday, he's not your guy, even though I expect he's going to be asked to do it once again this Sunday. All right. So when we look at the guys who have not played very much, Mac Wilson snicks six snaps this season. Jacob Phillips, 12 snaps this season. Ronnie Harris, 14 snaps. Kevin Johnson, 37 snaps. MJ Stewart, 29 snaps. Ellis, this particular issue, perimeter plays, the speed to track them down and stop teams from getting 11 yards per play. Are any of those guys answers to this issue? Yeah, Mac Wilson is the, the, really the only hope here. Um, he has got the perimeter speed to both go parallel with these lateral moving plays and track them. And he's also got the size to run through blocks and just blow a play up. Now, the problem is where is he at conditioning wise? Where is he at uh, health wise? And we saw that in a limited snap count uh, this past week, but they're going to need him this week because he again is really the only player that is got both the size and speed to, to blow some of this stuff up. Um, Kevin Johnson's a guy who has the speed of course to do it, but I worry with his frame, you're in a Tavier Thomas sense and, and Kevin Johnson's longer, but I don't know if he's got the, the build to get through him. And sometimes just getting off blocks is an intensity thing and it's just a mindset. So maybe he does have that dog. I haven't, I haven't watched enough, you know, of his tape prior. He, he's had a really no healthy seasons these past two or three years. So that's kind of a wait and see thing. Um, and then Ronnie Harrison, again, is a guy who, who could help, but we're going to have to see. And that, uh, this is now sort of the same argument all over again. In the offseason, we were like, well, we're going to have to wait and see with these linebackers. We're going to have to wait and see with these box safeties. And now the first unit has shown what they are. And now we're clinging on to hope for the second unit. 
I don't like where that lands, but a few of those guys are wait and see. Mac Wilson is really the only guy I see being, I don't know if a difference maker is the right way to put it, but at least a guy who can disrupt this and potentially uh, deter teams from stretching the, the Brown sideline to sideline. So here's the question I want to ask about this. And I would, I would have tried to look up numbers on this, except I don't know where you guys go for this stuff, man. Is it like secret or secret websites or dark web of football stats that like regular people like me don't know about. So it doesn't feel like they're getting burned down the field on deep shots. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not thinking of any. So to me, if what you are giving up, and this goes back a little bit to what Scott talked about, the linebacker coverage, you're giving up stuff in the middle of the field. You're giving up stuff from sideline to sideline, but you're making teams march. If you make a team march and say, well, you might score on us, but it's going to take eight or 10 plays. And then you cross your fingers that in one of those 10 plays, Miles Garrett gets in the backfield and strips the ball from the quarterback. Don't give up the big plays. Pray that your pass rush gets home a couple times a game and short circuits these long drives so they don't lead to scores. I don't know. In a world where, listen, they got defensive problems. Scott, is that a plan? What I was talking about before, let's connect Miles Garrett to this. Yes, this is not great. But if you can, if you can avoid big plays, then maybe you give Miles Garrett a, more of a chance to get to work. I believe the proper term for that is bend but don't break. You know, that's what you call that? I haven't heard that before. You should really market that. Go ahead. Put on T-shirt. Uh, Put on T-shirt. Yeah. You know, that might be the best case scenario for this team. And having Miles Garrett out there obviously allows that to happen. That's a great thing for a team that that uh, is having trouble covering people in coverage. So, you know, the fact that you have one of the premier pass rushers certainly is going to help. I think the better plan is is simply getting people healthy and getting a look at what Mac Wilson and maybe Jacob Phillips look like together out there uh, in the middle of the field over the second half of the season, uh, because it can't be any worse than what we're seeing so far. I do believe uh, what Ellis said earlier was probably true. Goodson's probably going to stay on the field. And I mean, he's a good tackler. That is a, a, uh, a strong suit of his throughout his career. So he's kind of like George Foreman, you know, you get too close to him. He's going to, he's going to take you down, but teams clearly are figuring out how to avoid him and, uh, and not let that happen. But I, the best plan, I think, is healthy and, and trying a different duo there uh, in the middle of the field, guys who are younger and, and quicker, and you hope that the potential that Mac Wilson flashed at times last season comes to fruition. Because, Ellis, giving up these horizontal yards, not good, but it's better than giving up vertical yards, right? Or am I just trying to paint, paint a turd with some rainbow sprinkles here? No, Doug, you're, you're exactly right about this. And it's what Joe Woods said in his opening press conference uh, when he first got the job was we are going to be a bend but don't break defense. The problem with that is they're breaking. They're breaking in the red zone. I don't have the, num- I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'd guess that the Browns are, you know, bottom half, if not worse, in red zone defense right now. I mean, just think what Joe Burrow was able to do in the red zone, what Washington was able to do yesterday. Uh, and, and here's the issue. They're not giving up vertical plays because Terrence Mitchell – and Denzel Ward are playing well. Even I, I think of um, Anderson Deho has had some decent moments deep. But then you see Terrence Mitchell and Denzel Ward giving up touchdowns in the red zone on some more in-bending routes. So, yes, it's fine in theory, of course, to bend but not break. But they're breaking when they get down there anyway. And if you're going to give uh, a team a short field and then not be a good red zone defense anyway, you're just all around not a good defense. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably right. It bend but don't break, but then you actually break is actually not much of, of, a, of a very good strategy. Great dive by Ellis. We're going to take another quick break. 
here on Gotta Watch the Tape, and we'll come back with our final thoughts. You're listening to Cleveland.com's latest podcast in the Orange and Brown Talk feed. All right, back on Gotta Watch the Tape. Things we're thinking about this week, again, big Sunday game, Cleveland at Dallas. Scott Patsko, what are you thinking about right now? Uh, I'm looking at third downs. The Browns came into the game 40% uh, conversion rate on third downs, and that's about 22nd in the league, and they got worse. They were 5 of 14, 36%, and as you probably remember, a ton of them were third and long. Uh, eight of the 14 were actually longer than – or they were at least third and six, uh, which dropped them down a, a little more. Stefanski's offense last year, top 10 third down conversions, and they're going against a Cowboys team that has gotten better every week and defending third downs. Uh, the Rams torched them like 50, 53%, but uh, they're down to 38% last week in Seattle. So they, they've shown progress in that. The Browns, meanwhile, are going the other way, so that's someone kind of watching. Ellis, what you got? Well, I just was hard on the Browns' defense and specifically their red zone defense. What I want to get into next week is the Browns' red zone efficiency on offense. They've been dang impressive. Um, they rank currently fourth in the league at an 80% conversion rate, touchdown only. Uh, and that is a product of both Kevin Stefanski proving that he is becoming one of the better got-to-have-it-down coaches and play callers in the league. And it's also a testament to Baker Mayfield, this offensive line, and, of course, the running backs and tight ends that are really the focal point of this offense. So we're going to have a deep dive on why specifically, not just I gave you the stat, 80%, but we're going to tell you why the Browns' red zone offense is so much more efficient this year compared to last year. That's an 80% touchdown rate for the Browns' offense. I finally got the stat. In giving up red zone touchdowns, the Browns are 27th. Opponents are scoring touchdowns 77% of the time. So they're giving up the red zone touchdowns almost as much as they're scoring them. So good for the offense, bad for the defense. Doug, that's called breaking. There you go. <laughs> that's, that is yeah. Ben, but still break. That's, that's more what they are. Uh, my last thing, and I was going to do this on the other podcast, the Orange Brown Talk podcast, and then the, the, the discussion, I was going to say fight. It was kind of a fight that Mary Kay Cabernet had about Baker, and I had about Baker Mayfield went so long that I didn't get to do my little thing at the end about what I'm not sure about. The Browns run game, and, I, and, I, and I'm, just, I'm just noting this. I don't know that it means anything. They wound up 37 carries for 158 yards against Washington. I, I, just a quick check of the play-by-play. 16 carries for 98 yards in the fourth quarter when they really put the game in the way on the ground. That means the first three quarters, 21 carries for 60 yards. Like, not great. As much as we love this Browns run game, they did not come out and establish that early on now they had short fields and all that kind of stuff great but it wasn't spectacular that's a good washington defensive line they lost two guys during the game they lost chase young and then they lost that other guy with the with the vowel name with a bunch of vowels in it who's out for the year now ionitis right is that right who it is so that helped the browns but that's worth noting that this thing we think they're always good at they were not good at for the first three quarters and they still found a way to win scott what you got on that a little Tack on to the end of that, a lot of people uh, emailed me today wanting to know why Nick Chubb got a 56.8 grade from PFF. And a lot of it has to do with those first three quarters when the Browns were getting no gain, one yard, two yards on first down. Um, everybody remembers Nick Chubb's big runs, but uh, all those third and longs had to start somewhere. And, and a lot of it started with that run game. When they're good, they're good. I mean, some of that outside zone you can see. And as we talked about with Wyatt Teller, when he gets out and pulls, they had another run the, uh, on, on Sunday where – Harrison Bryant and Jedrick Wills sealed on the outside. It was like two rookies doing their job perfectly, 
Petonio pulled and got a guy, and then Wyatt Teller pulled around and got a guy, and it was beautiful. But let's not act like that happens every snap. I mean, there are some times where it's just like, oh, look, there's a guy in the backfield. So I think that's something maybe we can get into at some point. But I just, it's, it's, it's not, I don't think it's a concern, but I just wanted to note it because they did it in the fourth quarter. They didn't do it in the first three. Ellis, what you got? Well, I'll say this. We can get out of here with a little Baker Mayfield tease. What is this team going to do when they can't establish the run early? and perhaps get down 14, 17 points, and Baker Mayfield's going to have to bring them back. That's what we're looking for in this next step with Baker because the Browns have shown in back-to-back weeks that they can run the ball in the fourth quarter and put teams away. But it's when this defense gives them a 14, 17-point disadvantage that the run games are going to get thrown out the window. It might not be against a team like Baltimore, but these better offenses, specifically a team like the Raiders, are going to be capable of doing that. And we're, again, the schedule is going to take care of itself, but there's a little Baker Mayfield tease for you, Doug. We'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually, won't we? I got a whole theory and it ties into JT Barrett at Ohio state and quarterbacks who are, might be questioning what they're seeing and don't want to throw a pick. And sometimes what happens when you get in a hole and you don't have an option of questioning yourself and maybe if they do get in that situation, and it, it's not like week one was great, but next time as he grows in this offense, I think it's possible that what Baker Mayfield might need at times to really just trust himself and not see ghosts and let it go is a hole. Think about, think about that. I've got to watch the tape, baby. Now, that's not tape-based. That's dumb column theory-based. But we'll get into tape on that. So we're going to get into more Baker. We're going to get into more defense. We're going to get into special teams at some point. I know Scott wants to do special teams at some point. Scott's always got good special team stuff coming. So that's what we do on Got to Watch the Tape. We'll be back at the end of the week to, again, sort of look ahead even more to this Dallas and Cleveland game on Sunday. But for now, thanks so much to you guys for listening. For Scott Patsko and Ellis Williams, I'm Doug Maurice. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.